0: The University is an institution of higher education that awards academic degrees in a variety of disciplines and fields of study. But it is more than brick and mortar, curriculum and transcripts, and athletic programs and social networks. It is people, past, present, and future, who give it a unique identity and compelling sense of purpose as a learning community. The University is a place with a history and geographic location shaped by its environment and surroundings. It has a moral responsibility to serve the people in places in the region where it is located and beyond. The university is also an engaging conversation over a long period of time about the things that matter most. It is a convening place for probing timeless questions and exploring consequential ideas. Welcome to Campbell Conversations. I am Brad Creed, the fifth president of Campbell University and host for these conversations. I live and work on a college campus. Some days I walk to my office when students are making their way to the first class of the day. During the day when I'm not away from the campus on business or meeting with donors and other constituents, I like to get out of the office, roam around campus, which, if I may say so, is a beautiful place, and I like to mix and mingle with students. On any given day, I interact with a wide range of students. They are the reason I do what I do, and they are why Campbell University exists. The very first line of our university mission statement reads, The mission of Campbell University is to graduate students with exemplary academic and professional skills who are prepared for purposeful lives and meaningful service. These are the best years of their lives, a time they will look back on as halcyon days when they came of age and their minds were stretched to new ideas and they formed their most significant and lasting relationships. These are days for exploration and growth an interregnum between adolescence and adulthood before they are saddled with a mortgage and driven by the demands of a full-time job and the progressive revelation that there are much greater pressures in life than taking a final exam, completing a research paper, or breaking up with a girlfriend. Campbell University is an interpersonal community, a sociable space. More than most university campuses, at least based on my experience and observations, Our students are friendly, more likely to greet you with a good morning and a smile. Each year when I do this, I grow older, but the students stay the same age, which is a perspective that keeps me young at heart. Behind many of the smiles and cheerful countenances, however, lurks a troubling uneasiness. According to some researchers, these college students are experiencing record levels of anxiety and stress and this was happening before the onset of a global pandemic. They're having more struggles handling stress than previous generations of college students. Harvard University psychologist Howard Gardner is conducting a longitudinal study on higher education, which he launched in 2014. In studying multiple schools and conducting over 2,000 interviews, he has noted a common and consistent concern expressed by and about today's college students. These are concerns about mental health and the need to belong. Another social scientist, Jonathan Haidt, makes similar observations with his co-author, Greg Lukianoff, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. There's a lot to unpack in that title, but Jonathan Haidt addresses what he calls an anti-fragility culture, which is characterized by an unhealthy concern and even preoccupation for safety and shielding young people from discomfort and stress. This good intention on the part of parents and educators has had an unsatisfactory outcome. Coddled kids are unprepared for the real world, which has resulted in a much higher percentage of teens and young adults suffering from anxiety and depression. Instead of sheltering children because of fears over their fragility, Jonathan Haidt said we should work for their resilience and ensure that they encounter stress, setbacks, and disappointments. Haight put it in the form of an aphorism. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Joining me today in Campbell Conversations to probe this issue of the fragility culture, rising levels of anxiety in young adults, and resilience is Dr. Laura Lunsford. She is professor and chair of the Department of Psychology in the School of Education at Campbell University. She has worked with young adults throughout her impressive career in higher education, having previously worked and taught at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington immediately before joining us here at Campbell. And before that, serving in positions at Duke University, North Carolina State, and the University of Arizona. She has worked extensively in developing and managing mentoring and leadership programs and has an impressive publishing record on these topics. Welcome to Campbell Conversations, Dr. Laura Lunsford. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, President Creed. I can't imagine a better time spent than talking about one of my favorite topics, resiliency.
0: And um, that's only intensified because of the time that we're living in uh, this global pandemic. Uh, It's hard for the students now to have the perspective that this is something they'll be talking to their grandkids about. But this is a timely topic, and, and I appreciate you joining me. So, uh, a little bit about you. I think you're a native North Carolinian, or
1: you're not? I am a native North Carolinian, okay. born and raised in Durham, Northern Durham, North Carolina.
0: Okay. And that's important to note, I guess, northern Durham,
1: right? It's the rural part of okay. uh, the county. Yes. Right. Very good.
0: <laughs> and uh, your field is psychology. How did you get interested in psychology? You know, I rib all psychologists. They, they only went into that field because they're trying to deal with their own neuroses. And I'm sure you had other reasons.
1: Oh, if if only I could figure it out. Um, But actually, I started life in college as an electrical engineer.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: I thought oscilloscopes were the best thing ever um, and went to NC State University where I figured out I love solving problems, but with people, not with things. And so I changed after two years to psychology and had some pretty amazing uh, free electives for a psychology major.
0: But I bet the bent towards mathematics has helped you with the statistics and some of the social science research that you do.
1: It has. It's. Um, I always talk to students about they're worried about statistics, but they're, that's a tool to help figure out what works and what doesn't work and how to interpret and think critically about data. And we're seeing a lot of that data thrown at us about now. Yeah.
0: Well, this topic, resilience, or to be more precise, the lack thereof, um, this is a timely topic. And I suppose I first became aware of this several years back and in an article, I think in the New York Times, it was talking about this and that this kind of got attention. And as I began to reflect back on some of my observations and what was happening to college students, and uh, I, I recognize that. But first of all, what does it mean to be resilient? This is something that we should desire and we would want for our young people.
1: Psychologists talk about resiliency as being adaptable in the face of a challenge. And another important idea is that you bounce back, but that you might even bounce further uh, up than you were when it first started. So this idea of post-traumatic growth, if you will, is really important to the Mm -hmm. idea of resiliency. And it's useful to think about what does it mean in terms of people? Can you develop it as a skill? Is it something you're born with? and we do twin studies in psychology to try to answer that question and it ends up that about 40 to 50 percent of resilience is trait-based or we would say you're you're born with that but the rest of it has to do with your family and the support systems in your community they have a big impact on how resilient you are as well
0: okay so there is room for growth there
1: there is room for growth and i just finished teaching positive psychology this summer we talked a lot about resilience and how you can learn to become more resilient.
0: Even at this age, uh, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll say as educators, so much uh, about a student's potential depends on uh, circumstances prior to our coming here, but there's room for growth and development and that's, uh, that's encouraging. Well, now, to the assertion that's being made, um, are today's young adults experiencing record levels of anxiety, depression, And other mental health disorders compared to previous generations
1: the answer is yes and it gets so that's the the quick and easy answer they've done annual surveys of college students from 2007 to 2018 and they found during that time uh, especially severe anxiety rates doubled from 6 to 12 percent if we walked around on campus this time last year Probably about 25 to 30% of students at that moment would be reporting some uh, anxiety and depression. 20% are reporting it, an ongoing situation. There does seem to be an increase. And then the question is why? Right. Why is the increase? And psychologists are looking now at how is coronavirus and some of the social isolation making that uh, more problematic for, for young people as well.
0: Well, uh, we'll have students return here, hopefully, in, in a couple of weeks. We're planning on that, and um, we've already anticipated some of the stress that they will be under and, and the mental health issues. They're already there, but uh, this undoubtedly will ask, exacerbate it. Well, what are the root causes of this? Uh, I, I think probably some of it is just their own personal makeup, their, their traits, and you know, undoubtedly a lot of it's biologically rooted, but uh, their family context. Um, and what are, what are researchers saying about, uh, what's, what's brought this on? I'm not going to use the word epidemic, but certainly greater than it was in times past.
1: Well, it's a great question. And people have been looking at this data because if it is trait based, if it's just how you are, it wouldn't be doubling. So that's an interesting question. Why is it increasing? What's, what's happening? People suddenly didn't change their DNA to make them become more anxious. Psychologists look at two main areas that one will be no surprise to, probably either one of them actually, that connected um, more connection with social media and yes. technology. And the way that happens is that they spend more time on social media than actual relationships face to face with people. And we know for humans that It's really important. The sense of touch, for example, bonds us to one another. Different hormones flow throughout your body when you have those kinds of experiences versus looking at a screen. There also seems to be some disruption of in-person social interactions because of technology, so that's problematic. Again, decreasing the actual real connections and friends. I often say to my students, if you get a flat tire face, your Facebook friend isn't rescuing you. Your real (laughs) friend is going to do that. And so investing time in those relationships Um, has really lessened with more technology. Then there's also this issue of cyberbullying and toxic environment, so it's much more possible on technology and that's certainly added to some increases. And then they also say that this has affected how much people sleep, but college students already didn't sleep enough. So sleep deprivation is the other real problem. And when they come into an environment and it's a new schedule and they're not getting enough sleep, this also really can contribute to push people over into anxiety and depression. After two weeks of sleep being six hours or less a night, students feel as bad and perform as poorly as someone who has gone without sleep for two days.
0: My goodness. Well, and uh, studies have been done to show the role that electronic devices have on disrupting brain waves and sleep patterns, is that correct?
1: Yes. Um, there's some contradictory information about the blue light that comes from technology, but usually it's also that they're just on it, and it's hard to put down. And mm. let's face it, people are selling software on these phones and iPads, so they're very good at making it attractive to humans. So we keep wanting to check. Do we have another light? Do we have a text? There's noises. We, we respond to those. We almost become conditioned to want to look at them all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, I've forgotten the number, but um, I could be stating this wrong. Our student affairs office does this. The average student that comes to campus brings with him or herself an average of about five electronic devices. You know, from phone to iPad to game station to laptop computer, uh, and that was just unthought of when when I was a college student. I had a Smith Corona portable electric typewriter and uh, a Texas Instruments slide rule calculator and maybe a transistor radio, but uh, that's the world that, that we live in.
1: Uh, well, tonight. think how dramatic that environment has changed. I, too, brought an IBM Selectric typewriter, <laughs> and I thought it was a really big deal, and my other technology was a microwave. <laughs> so, yeah. um, think of though how much that's changed just in our lifetimes in that environment that can really affect yeah. uh, how students relate to one another.
0: You're so correct about students needing to rest, uh, you know. You, they think that they're young, they, they're they bulletproof, they can burn the candle at both ends. Uh, and I tell students this regularly, you know, you you, you need to rest you, you for your health. And toward the end of the semester, we see more incidences of, of colds and flu. Um, the best piece of graffiti, or at least the most memorable one that I take away from college, I was sitting in the library at my university one day studying and, uh, somebody had written a magic marker on the side of the study, Carol, which they shouldn't have done. If God had been a college student, God would have rested six days and pulled an all-nighter. And uh, <laughs> that's what students do, but uh, it's, it's so important. Um, well, also back to social media, which uh, electronic devices make possible. Um, You know we hear today one of the characteristics of the the age that we live in postmodernism. that that's an awkward phrase It means that after which is current, but is the socially constructed self. Yes Uh, And I I personally believe that more goes into a person than that But this becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you're on social media you're putting out there who you want to people to see that you are, and I guess perhaps for some people the number of likes mm-hmm. is, is important, and you know, I have Facebook, I'm not on Twitter, Instagram, but um, talk about that a little bit and the, the psychological dynamics of, um, of social media and, and how this can lead to, to a lack of resilience.
1: Well, first of all, you're already behind the times because TikTok is the new uh, Instagram and Facebook is for old people like you and me. Um, And I also learned a new term recently from my students that scholars are starting to look at called FOMO, fear of missing out.
0: Fear of missing out.
1: And so they they present the best picture of an event. They're busy taking photographs rather than actually experiencing an event. And then all everyone else looks at that and thinks, oh, gosh, I I missed out. And I have some fear if I don't go that I might miss out on something great. And so they're in this heightened level of uh, vigilance all the time, checking the social media, feeling like they have to put forth this really happy, positive persona. And that's just not how real life is. So they're not being present, and a lot of scholars are talking about this idea of mindfulness that has been around for a long time, just to be in that moment, experience, and be with the people whom you're with at that moment. One of the assignments I have in my psychology courses is a a scavenger hunt, and they have to do things like just savor, slow down. A lot of the activities just force them to slow down, and it's amazing how students report how busy they realize they feel and social media just adds to that the idea of identity is we get to sort of pick someone else um, if we can just post different things or change the faces and little kids know how to do this yeah. um, I mean I have a niece who can make me you know look like some actress it's, <laughs> I don't know how to do that on my phone so but just think about the messages yeah that that's sending
0: yeah it's it's a new world indeed um, I, I, I want to you a little story about what happened to me a few weeks ago and uh i i'm going somewhere with this 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 plays into this i was back in the hometown where i grew up visiting my parents and um, as you know i'm a runner i went out for my my run and uh you know ran by the old elementary school where where i went and um, ran from the elementary school to the house i lived in between ages uh two and nine and then when i ran back i ran from the elementary school to the house I lived in from ages uh, age nine until I left home and each was about a half a mile one was a little longer but it occurred to me I was in the first grade six years old and I walked to school by myself and on the way back on El Paso Street I would sometimes knock on the door of Miss Jenny Rives an elderly woman who you know asked me to stop by she'd give me a coca-cola and um, here I was six years old being able to roam around. Uh, my parents are getting uh, older and took them out in the country for a ride and went down some old dirt roads. Uh, and I didn't tell them what had happened on some of those dirt roads when I was 14 because I had a friend whose family had a farm and at age 13 or 14, he was driving the farm truck and we were allowed to roam. So, the question I often ask people now and I'll ask you, at what age were you allowed to free range, do you remember living in the country?
1: I just was talking with my mother about this this week because I was trying to recollect and she agreed with me that it was around the age of six or seven Yeah, and they vaguely knew what direction I was so they could you know, yell out when it's dinner uh, time, but there was no fences, uh, I could go in the creek, go to the neighbors um, and that's a really different experience when I asked students today that same question. Okay. Um, How many of you have gone 24 hours and not talked to your parent? Uh, Virtually no one will raise their hand even in college. Wow. So it's pretty amazing that tether is very short for most students now whereas um, It was pretty long uh, not that long ago.
0: Yeah, I remember going to college and uh, my parents drove me two and a half hours away And they helped me move into my dorm room. I did not have a car You know, they they hugged my neck and kissed me. Goodbye and I called them once a week and, uh, you know, went home occasionally. Um, Well, the studies that I've seen show now, or starting about 1994, that average age of roaming, free-ranging, has gone up from whatever it was to about 12 to 14. And there's a great irony here because in about the year 1994 is when national crime rates started uh, going down. And so about the time the world is getting safer, we're keeping kids inside and uh, not letting them, them free range. I don't know why that is, but um, I think you would agree with me. I've been in this probably a little longer than you. We've seen parents more involved with their young adult children over a number of years. And somehow I think for whatever benefits there are in that, this helps uh, to sort of foster this uh, this anti-fragility culture that people are talking about
1: well they've uh, we've long identified in psychology different parenting styles and in addition to the normal four that we've talked a lot about in, in psychology there's all the helicopter parents so people know what yeah. that is but now there's right. a new one and it's called over-involved okay. so the over-involved parent I think is is what you're talking a little bit about and there's certainly um, parents have great intentions for their kids but also learning to let them sort some things out on their own is also a really important skill yeah
0: well on that recent trip back to my home place i I did some further ruminations and um I I either ran by or drove by some of the places that were formative to me, and some of them became apparent because they are no longer there. You know, they've mm-hmm. been torn down. But I'm thinking about the local institutions. The the church was very important in my formation. I was involved in Boy Scouts. Um, you know, the the elementary school and the junior high that I attended are not there, uh, but other schools are, and so I. I think institutions play a formative role. We're such an individual culture and uh, back to our previous reference to social media and constructing one's identity, uh, we're collectively formed and um, this is why this question is important to Campbell University because um, the university cannot be a platform, it should be a place for formation. Um, And so what role do institutions play uh, Am I? Do you Do you agree with my observation that the positive influence in building resiliency, the topic of the day, uh, is is waning in institutions?
1: Uh, well, yes and no. Okay. I think it's easy to pathologize um, what might be. Uh, just sort of normal responses given that environment. So if I looked at my phone all the time, it would be normal for me to feel anxious. We should feel anxious uh, right now with coronavirus. That's a normal response. And so this idea that that's abnormal um, isn't quite right. Have institutions changed? Are people less likely to be members in churches, for example, or other civic organizations? I would agree with that. And I think that those have provided important places for young people to explore and get out on their own. Um, and I think there is a place for institutions to do perhaps a bit more to help, help young people develop resiliency.
0: Yeah. I hope we can cultivate a mindset that uh, to be a person is more than to be an individual or if you want to use that word individual, to be a, a full individual means you're part of a community. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we're trying to do here. It's a very unique time when they have four years or so to be with people who are different than they are in something of a hothouse environment, I suppose. Uh, but uh, these places shape us and form us, for good or for bad. I mean, there are certainly deleterious effects from from institutions. Uh, and people had their stories about how an institution let them down or it, it was too restrictive. It got in the way of being who they wanted to be. But uh,
1: Well, one of the things I love about Campbell, for example, is there's a no cell phone policy in classes. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about that is sometimes faculty need to remind students, listen, this is a time for you to get to know someone you don't know. Not look at your phone before class. And so my students know, and I know other faculty members do the same, it's like this is a time to be together not just sort of you know, check out your social media. So yeah. I think Campbell does a nice job of trying to reinforce some of those lessons of connection, which is one of the habits to develop resiliency. Yeah.
0: Uh, many of our listeners will know that our Latin motto, and I think every university has to have one, <laughs> even though we don't speak Latin anymore. Our motto is Ad Astra Prospera, to the stars through difficulty. And um, I love that motto. Uh, it, it is descriptive, I hope, but it's aspirational and uh, really sort of resonates with what we're talking about here today. And the camel is the most resilient, or one of the most resilient uh, creatures in, in the animal kingdom. So what can Campbell University do? Uh, what can other universities do to build more resilience into their students?
1: There's four areas of focus that we know work for developing resilient habits. One we just talked about connection and having um, lots of supports for students to develop those connections, which is going to be more challenging in the upcoming years. We're trying to sort of be distant. And the second is wellness. So this idea of self-care that has to do with good sleep habits For example, um, we often educate students, you can put controls on your phone. Do not disturb at at night so you make sure you get sleep. This is something a lot of them don't know, surprisingly. Mm. And I think focusing on making sure students know how to manage some of that technology in an appropriate way is really important for wellness habits. Healthy thinking, so how we frame what happens to us is another way. Um, Institutions can really help students respond and deal with failure. And the fourth is meaning, which I think Campbell focuses on a lot. Like what's important to you um, and how then you want to persevere to achieve what your goals are.
0: Yeah. Well, this is important work that we're doing and uh, we have sort of a unique opportunity. And I often remind myself if, if I'm teaching a class of sophomores, They're not three years away from the workforce or graduate school, they're just one year away from from high school, but uh, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, uh, I get older every year the students stay the same age, which is a very unique perspective. Uh, Most other professionals don't have that. Lawyers grow older with their clients and doctors with their patients, but it's different for us. But to see the development uh, in that period of time uh, is, is remarkable and hopefully it continues after they uh, leave this this place what else should we know about resilience Um, these are very helpful tips Um, if our students are listening what what else would you say that we ought to keep in mind and particularly now that we're dealing with this unprecedented challenge of COVID-19
1: I think it's time to grab the people you love a little bit closer and be patient and graceful um, I have spent a lot of time with my husband the last several months. I normally get a little break from that, and so
0: and y'all are still speaking and we're still with speaking together. Okay, Absolutely.
1: Correct. So huh. I think learning to be patient with yourself and and grab people close for those relationships. And the other is some self care and just sort of giving yourself a break. I really saw that with my students uh, this summer that they realized, gosh, I don't need to be so critical. It's okay to feel this way right now, but then get up tomorrow and start again. And this idea of a setback today doesn't mean it has to be a setback tomorrow, but that it's an opportunity for growth is really key. Uh, I'll leave you with a a last story. I had a student uh, last year, I was on a trip and she wrote me an email that she'd failed or thought she'd failed a test. And I wrote her back and said, hooray, finally, you failed something, you know how to now learn to pick yourself back up. She laughed so hard when I saw her later. She didn't fail, of course, um, but just this way to rethink Gosh, this isn't the end of it. You know, how can I get back tomorrow and, yeah. and try again is really important. Well,
0: teachers can do a lot of things, and sometimes they can help reframe an idea or a circumstance for students and give them permission to look at it a little bit different way. I'm all about good habits, and um, this is a time in their lives when they start forming habits. You know, we talked about getting more rest, which is hard to do when you're young and a lot going on. Um, you and I both are believers in exercise, and um, you know, we encourage our students to do that while they're here and you know, starting to make some plans. You know, I've, I've told students before, um, your plan for the week is much more important than the plan for your life right now. <laughs> and that's a manageable bit that they, can, that they can get their minds around. Well, I appreciate you sharing with us today um, this important work that we're doing and bringing it to our attention. I've got to ask you a few questions before we get away here. Um, what was your high school mascot?
1: Northern Knights.
0: The Northern Knights. So you went to North Durham? North Durham I,
1: High School and Knights as in K-N-I, Knights. Yes. yes. Right. Um, so, yes, Northern Durham High School.
0: But there were no medieval castles or moats in Durham County, I guess. That you know of. Yes. We're
1: still looking. I'm yes. not sure how we yeah. got to Ancient the Ancient British
0: Knights. peoples, <laughs> maybe under... Uh, the leadership of, um, you know, uh, who, who was the famous king that has all the legend around him in England? I'm trying to think of his name oh, Arthur. Arthur. Why couldn't I think of Arthur? It's because I'm getting older every year and <laughs> students are staying <laughs> Not the same enough sleep. Age. That's right. You're yeah. Out. Okay, well, so um, where is a f- one of the favorite places you've ever visited to travel or vacation?
1: Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. Um, internationally would be Spain. I love Spain. It's a beautiful place. Love yeah. the food. But I also love the coast in North Carolina. I think we have a beautiful coast.
0: We really do. Um, I grew up in Texas, and I'm familiar with the Texas coast. And then uh, when I lived in Alabama, went down to the Gulf Coast. But the, the North Carolina coast is unique. It's not as developed commercially. There's just a beauty to it. I've never been to Spain. I've been to Europe and um, just about every place in Europe, but I would I would love to go, um, that, that culture. And you, you speak a little Spanish.
1: I speak a little and my husband's a native speaker. So right. we managed to go into the small towns of Spain and, and they're just wonderful.
0: But he doesn't speak Castiliano. He could, I guess. Yes,
1: uh, he could. Yes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a little
0: different. So where do you want to go that you haven't been?
1: Where do I want to go? Japan. I have not been to Japan. I study karate and I've always wanted to go uh, to Kyoto and see the gardens and Okinawa, Japan, or the birthplace of Shotokan karate.
0: Okay, well, I have that on you. I've been to Japan. Uh, my parents lived there before I was born and was able to go see the city, Fukuoka, where, where they lived. And it is an absolutely fascinating country. I've been to Kyoto. Um, and just like to read about that. I would like to go back. And and I know that you speak karate, which is why I'm keeping my distance from you. (laughs) It's not just social distancing, but uh, yeah, behind that that nice smile and and pleasant demeanor, is somebody we don't want to mess with. And that's the kind of person we need as the chair of our psychology (laughs) department. Well, thank you, Dr. Laura Lunsford, for uh, the leadership that uh, you bring to our university, for your concern uh, for our students and what you're doing to help them. I think we've learned some things today, how we can all work uh, to be more resilient people. And thank you for joining us today for Campbell Conversations. Campbell Conversations is hosted by Campbell University President Jay Bradley Creed, and it's produced by me, Billy Liggett, Director of News and Publications. The second episode with Dr. Laura Lunsford was recorded on July 16th, on the campus of Campbell University in Buies Creek, North Carolina. This and all episodes of Campbell Conversations, as well as Campbell University's Rhymes with Orange podcast, can be found online at campbelledu.podbean.com or at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.